Uh, we are looking at Psalm 120 tonight, continuing our study of the Psalms. And the uh, outline that you have is what I want to cover. There are some questions on there that I want us to think about. And I encourage you to participate in that. Psalm 120 is the first in a group of 15 psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And we think that uh, subtitle, that description, describes a group of psalms that the Jews would sing as they were traveling to Jerusalem on the three pilgrimage festivals that were prescribed by Moses. Jerusalem was on the highest hill in Palestine, and so wherever, whatever direction you were approaching Jerusalem from, you were going up, you were ascending. And so these psalms would be sung by the whole group together as they traveled. Passover, celebrating God's rescue from slavery in Egypt. Pentecost, celebrating the giving of the law through Moses at Sinai. And the Feast of Tabernacles, which uh, Passover in the spring, uh, Pentecost at the very beginning of summer, Tabernacles at the very beginning of fall, celebrating God's care and provision for the Jews during the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. Those are called pilgrimage festivals, where all the Jews were required to come to Jerusalem. By the time of Jesus, uh, the Jews were so widely scattered that only those living within 15 miles of Jerusalem were required to make that trip. But you remember Luke's story of the time when Jesus was 12, the family was going to Jerusalem for Passover, and the whole group was going together, and that's how Jesus got lost. They assumed he was with some other family relatives. But that's, that's an example of what we're talking about. So they were to sing these songs as they went. They are varied. This is the first one, and it is not a positive psalm. The first phrase is in distress, and the last word is war. And those are not pleasant associations. Uh, I went to the, the uh, website Bible Gateway. Are you familiar with Bible Gateway? Uh, you can look up any passage, any book in the Bible, and then they have 25 or 30 versions, English versions, when, and they also have Greek and Hebrew as well. But the English versions will give you uh, variations in expression and translation. And it's interesting to me that the NIV, which, which I typically use, has the two halves of the first line reversed. Many of the English versions have them in the correct order. In distress is what comes first. This psalm is telling you right off the bat that this is a psalm of distress. It's a lament. It's crying out to God in my distress. When I was thinking about which psalm I was going to lead our thoughts in tonight, I thought, who in here cannot identify with distress? We have been in distress on a number of levels for months. Concern about the virus, concern about associations with people, 
Family reunions have been canceled. Weddings have been postponed. Funerals have been restricted to just the family and at the graveside. I mean, is there distress? The news is full of distress. Distress overseas. Economic distress. Political distress. Racial distress. Can you think of other ways that this expression describes us here tonight? What are other examples of distress? Sorry? Distress from work. From work. Absolutely. If you have a difficult boss or a difficult employee or somebody who won't take instructions or follow directions, it can be really stressful on more than just one person. The whole organization can be affected. That's a good one. Wherever you are on a daily basis has sources of stress and anxiety. The one? The, the people we just prayed for. Don't you know there's distress there? So this is the psalm that starts out with where every human being can identify. In my distress. And then the NIV says, I call on the Lord. But a lot of the English translations say, I cry to the Lord. What does a two-year-old do for a, to a parent when they are in distress? It's not calling it's crying. It's screaming. I can, I have in mind a visual here of a God person, a person of faith, turning to God in a time of distress with a cry, with deep felt need. This, you know, I grew up in a time when going to the Bible was supposed to be a very rational experience. You know, there was, things are laid out in order. There are five steps here and three steps there. And Psalms are emotional. Poetry is emotional. The Psalms are a book of songs. And for that reason, we're going to sing two songs. Tonight just seemed to me obvious that if you're studying the Psalms and there is a song that is written that goes with the thought, we should sing it. So we're going to sing two of those. Distress, crying to the Lord. Why would we cry to the Lord? Why would we not go to a doctor, a psychiatrist? an expert in the field of whatever is distressing us. Why? To God. What this psalm is going to describe is two groups of people. There's the God-oriented person who relies on God in these times of distress. And then there are the others. Listen to these words. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. It's, there are some people that it seems like they would rather lie than tell the truth. 
Have you ever experienced somebody like that? I have known somebody who would lie rather than tell the truth, and it brought them no advantage. It was just that they knew the truth, and they didn't want to let go of it. And do politicians lie? Do advertisers lie? Do celebrities lie? Who can you think of in the public sphere who doesn't? In fact, where can you turn that somebody's word is so reliable that you know you can trust it every time? What will he do to you and what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Meshach was a country far to the north of Israel. In other words, foreigners, foreign language, foreign customs, foreign religion. And Kadesh was a group of Bedouins who were unscrupulous uh, warriors, disruptors of society who lived on the borders of Israel. These are the other people. These are not like the ones who trust in God and who try to create a barrier with the deceitful tongue and the lying lips. Too long I have lived among those who hate peace. I am one of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. We sometimes hear the term worldview. It describes the principles, the priorities, the values that a person follows, views as important. These are two different worldviews. One comes from God and is from a heart that tries to please God. The other is from the world that doesn't know God or has rejected God. Do we live in that world? So I, the thing that impresses me about the Psalms is how relevant they are. Not everyone is relevant to you at the moment you read it, but every one of them is relevant to the human experience in the world on behalf of God's people. So either you can react to that situation by just being discouraged and by giving up and saying, everybody else is that way. I might as well join them. Or realizing that this is the real situation, it can be a stimulus toward change. Remember Maslow's laws? And he says that in order for change to happen, you have to feel disequilibrium. Something has to upset the apple cart. Things can't be the same as they are, as you want them to be. That's what we're talking about. Distress. Distress motivates us to cry to God, reminds us that we are weak, but He 
is strong. Uh, one writer says about the book of Psalms, more than any other book in the Bible, Psalms reveals what a heartfelt, soul-starved, single-minded relationship with God looks like. God is the first place you go for help, and He is almost immediate when there is disaster, that you cry to God. Psalm 120 is a psalm about distress, and I am using for the, the thoughts for uh, what I'm going to say, uh, a, a book that is now 40 years old. I couldn't believe it when I looked at the copyright date. This book is 40 years old. It's by Eugene Peterson, who's the man who wrote The Message, and it's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's the idea of patience, of being dedicated to following the path of God's way rather than the world's way. And he deals with all 15 of the uh, Psalms of Ascent. And even though it's that old, I highly recommend it. It's, it's my favorite place to go for this section of the Psalms because he thinks so much about the human experience, especially in the Western world, especially in the advanced world that we all enjoy. Uh, I marked one place that I wanted to read to you that he said, in this time of seemingly everybody is against the Christians, and we are the ones who are trying to hang on. He says, if any of these things should happen, a crushing doubt, a squall of anger, a desperate loneliness, an accident that puts us in the hospital, an argument that puts us in the doghouse, a rebellion that puts us on the defensive, a misunderstanding that puts us in the wrong, it is a sign that something is wrong with our relationship to God. We have, consciously or unconsciously, retracted our yes to God. And God, impatient with our fickle faith, has gone off to take care of someone more deserving his attention. Is that what you believe? If it is, I have some incredibly good news for you. You're wrong. God doesn't always respond to our needs on our time. That's why we need the dedication of a long obedience in the same direction. We're putting one foot in front of the other as we walk the path of life, knowing where it will end, not knowing when, and not knowing what potholes we'll have to negotiate along the way. There are two kinds of people who walk through the world, according to uh, Eugene Peterson. One are tourists. They like to take a quick look at things. They like to experience lots of things, but they don't want to spend time on anything. We have become that way 
because we've been accustomed to 30-second commercials that used to be, and now some of them are 10 seconds. Just, or if you're watching a sporting event, they'll have a window open over here on the side with a commercial while the thing is still going on. Nobody wants to spend very long with anything. There's no patience. Tourist. But then there are what the Bible calls pilgrims. Pilgrims are those who are dedicated to a journey and they're always on the move. They know where they're going. Abraham is viewed as a pilgrim. The book of Hebrews says he didn't receive what had been promised during his lifetime, but his descendants did. It took long-term dedication, and that's what we need. <clears throat> the problem is distress caused by lying lips and the deceitful tongue. I don't know how many sitcoms over the last 15 years I've watched for one season or two and quit because, like, like the sitcom Friends, everybody is friends, but they lie to each other all the time. Uh, it's written in such a way that, that it's funny, you laugh, but, I mean, that's no way for people to relate to each other. They just can't tell the truth. How can a society consist very long with that kind of relationship among people. So it's relevant to ask the question, is the world getting better? What do you say? Is the world getting better? How could anybody say the world is getting better? I teach a class in comparative religions and uh, the religions that have a detailed eschatology, description of the end of the world, all agree that we are in the last stage of whatever their cycle is. Every one of them. There's no exception. It's, uh, when I first realized that, I thought, uh, that's really interesting. People keep saying the world is getting better. We're going to improve it. Human beings are going to overcome all the problems. That idea was shot down in the late 19th and the early 20th century. Remember the Industrial Revolution? Remember studying about that in, in history class? Steam engines and telephones and locomotives and, and, and eventually the uh, cars, horses, carriages. People said, human beings can do anything. We're going to conquer every disease, eliminate every problem. We may even eliminate death. Then you remember what happened in 1914 in the summer? First time ever in the history of the world? A world war. It was so devastating that when it was over and people referred to it as the Great War, they said, we sure learned our lesson. We'll never do that again. We've got to use our understanding and industry and technology to make life better, not to destroy life. And then 30 years later, here came Hitler with more powerful weapons of destruction and a more evil mind in which he eliminated. Estimates are, are about 12 million people. You only hear about the 6 million Jews he exterminated, but there were, there were gypsies and there were 
people with mental uh, def deficiencies and, and other foreigners and communists and anybody. 12 million people. We aren't getting better. And so then that raises a related question. Are people basically good? Do people grow up being dedicated to telling the truth, to serving others, to using only what belongs to them and not what belongs to someone else, for protecting the assets of others? I mean, where, does, where does somebody like Bernie Madoff come up with the idea that he can line his own pockets while taking it away from other people? But that's from inside himself. People are not basically good in spite of what so many social services people say. People ultimately are selfish and self-centered and godless, and they will serve their own best interests regardless of everybody else. The only way human beings have hope in the world is by turning to God, the lessons we learn from God, the presence of God, the gifts of God, and especially the gift of forgiveness. And so here's where the role of faith makes the biggest difference. The role of faith for the people of God versus those who do not know God. First of all is the assurance that God is with us and cares for us and has our best interests at heart. And everything God does is for good. And the second thing is that when distress happens, the psalm is about a time of distress. When distress happens... God doesn't necessarily make us understand the reason for the distress, but what he does for us is help us to learn strength, valuable lessons. In other words, that there is benefit in distress. One of the uh, examples that I learn uh, or use with my students because I experienced it as a high school student. When you play on an athletic team of any kind, after the season starts, first thing you do is calisthenics. And calisthenics hurt. They make your muscles sore and make you tired. And it's just difficult to withstand those first couple of weeks of practice. But when the game comes, the stronger muscles that you have help you to win the game. Distress works in a very similar way. This cry to the Lord coming out of distress is so typically human, isn't it? Aren't we more likely to pray to God when we are in need than any other time? The habit of prayer is supposed to be constant. So giving thanks to God and praying to God for other people. But you know the old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes? When the distress gets tight enough, I've, I've read the, the biographies of any number of atheists who at, at the time of their death have prayed, God, if there is a God, help me.
This psalm has the word Yahweh, the covenant name for God, only once. But he is very obviously the key to our distress and a key to the rest of the psalms of ascent. So often, God is pictured as distant. Powerful, yes, but so far above us and so different from us and so holy when we're not that there seems to be this, this barrier, this separation. And what the psalmist believes and what we believe is that God is personal and he is available and he is the provider of what we need when we need it, often in a way that we never anticipated. Haven't you had that experience in your life? You were in some kind of situation where you experienced a deep need and you prayed to God to help with this problem, but you told him how to fix it. <laughs> and when the solution did come, it was his doing, not yours, and it was much better than anything you could have anticipated. That's the God of the Psalms. We have to wait on his timing. We have to be patient. A long obedience in the same direction. It is the challenge of living faithfully as pilgrims. We haven't arrived yet at the destination. Remember, we're pilgrims. We're not tourists. We're not just quickly checking out of curiosity, but we are headed toward a goal that requires our patient dedication. What is required for us to cry out to God? What is the essential ingredient that causes us to cry out to God? Don't we have to realize that we are at the end of our rope? Don't we have to realize that we don't have the resources to deal with everything that life throws at us? And that requires humility. Remember the Tower of Babel? They were going to build a tower that reached the heavens to do what? To make a name for ourselves. They wanted to be well-known, famous for them. Adam and Eve ate the fruit because it would make them wise like God, knowing good and evil. Humility is praised by God. It's praised in the Old Testament, praised in the New Testament. It is an essential to truly repent for the things that will draw us closer to God. And when we journey by that faith, the faith in the God who responds to our repentance with forgiveness and with the assistance that we need. When we journey by faith, we will see his amazing grace. I love visiting with older saints who've been Christians for a long time because they can tell you stories about the appearance of God's grace when it was really needed and beyond measure that they could have attained themselves. The grace of God is one of the things you hear when 
You listen to other people talk about their life experience in faith. The song is a reminder to us of who we are. We're pilgrims dependent on God, but also where we're going. We're going to a place where there is no lying, no deceitful tongue. There are no untrustworthy friendships or promises. There's only the presence of the God who stands to assist us here and reward us there. And isn't that a great blessing to store up in our hearts? Psalm 120. I cry to the Lord in my distress, and he hears me. Well, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Gracious Father, you know our needs even better than we do. And you stand ready to bless us with everything we need. Most of all, you give us salvation. We pray for the gift of increased patience and for the gift of humility before you. Help us to speak truthfully. Cleanse our hearts so that they may be acceptable to you. And please continue to accompany us on our journey. We know that you respond to us in our times of distress, and we rely on your presence in those times. Thank you for the gift of faith and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.